Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben. Today my guest is Adrian Chastain-Weimer. Adrian is Professor of History at Providence College and we're talking to Adrian today about her new book, A Constitutional Culture, New England and the Struggle Against Arbitrary Rule in the Restoration Empire, just published by University of Pennsylvania Press earlier this year. Adrian, thanks for coming on to the show. Congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for having me, Crawford. It's a thrill to be here. It's great to have you here. Before we talk about the book, though, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're a professor of history at Providence College. You've written a couple of books, lots of articles on New England history. What's your what, what's your story? How have you come to this interest and activity? Well, I started exploring history through literature. I was an English major and I was reading Milton and Dunn and the poets. And then I came upon these these little scraps of paper that people in early New England penned to the coffin uh, at funerals. They're called elegies. And I it blew my mind that the whole whole society of people spent time writing little scraps of poetry. And so I, I came to it through poetry. And then I, I found a person I wanted to study with, David Hall, and, uh, and, and did a degree with him in, in religious history. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still amazed that I get to spend my time reading scraps of poetry in addition to sermons and literature and court records and all these other things. And of course, the book we're talking about today is dedicated to David Hall, isn't it? It is, yes. Now, David Hall's name crops up with some others in the acknowledgments, and in the acknowledgments, you tell us about the the literary culture, if you like, um, similar to the one you've just been describing, the literary culture in which the book was written, and it sounds fun and rich. There's lots of writing groups, lots of opportunity to discuss work with colleagues and friends. How does that work, and how did you find it enriching your experience of putting this book together? Well, I find to do a project like this, I've um, met so many wonderful people. So, you know, the first are the archivists at places like the Massachusetts Historical Society and Folger Shakespeare Library and American Antiquarian Society and, you know, the the British Library. And, you know, these these people are, are some of the most um, generous people I've ever met who, you know, took an interest in my project and really were quite willing to help me dig into, you know, random uh, autograph files. I had no idea how many autograph files are out there. These 19th century people just wanted the signatures. And so they bought the letters and put them in alphabetical order. And, you know, these, this, you know, some of the, the, the earlier, the, the beginning anecdote of the book I found in a, in an autograph, autograph file. So it was, it was the antiquary, you know, the librarians at Mass Historical in Boston who helped me find that. So, and then I have a local writing group of wonderful, wonderful Boston area historians from Brown and Boston College and Roger Williams and Providence College. Uh, and, you know, those those people are fantastic. We go out for a drink and read each other's chapters. And we're quite we're, we're quite harsh, actually, in a good way. We, we give each other real feedback. And but we we have a great time. Sometimes we meet on a sailboat. One of the guys has a sailboat. So we have our discussions out there on the water. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> is there a website where people can join? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, you mentioned there, Adrian, a number of the archives that you visited. And one of the, the really amazing things this book does is turn archival evidence into stories. Now, you mentioned a number of the archives you visited, and it's obvious you, you've done a huge amount of research uh, in dusty old, dreary old manuscript rooms, but the story that you create from each of these sources is really compelling and exciting. What kinds of sources are you using when you put this book together? Well, I mean, some of the sources I didn't expect to find, or I didn't expect to find the the stories in them. And one of those is the fast day sermons, which doesn't sound like the kind of thing that you would go to for, for maybe social or political history. But what I realized as I was reading, most of these are in manuscript and you know, people get a whole day off work. They, you know, they have to feed the animals or feed their kids. But but for the most part, they get a day off work and they come together usually on a Thursday, sometimes across the entire colony. They would come together as congregations and they would take notes on the minister's sermon. And we have those notes. We actually have hundreds of books, little little folio handwritten books of these manuscript fast day sermons. And uh, I know Owen's got these too. The, the John Owen fast day sermons are amazing. And what I realized as I was reading through the, the, these people's notes on a Thursday was that this is when ordinary people learned about politics. It was at the fast days. So when the minister would announce, this is, this is the trouble that's facing us. We're very worried about this king's policy or, you know, these royal commissioners, or we're very worried about, you know, it's environmental things or, or discord among the leadership or whatever it was. They were quite open about their challenges and asking the people to pray. And, you know, an older generation of historians would have said, oh, this is social control. It's top down. The minister's telling them what to think. And, if you if you spend an hour reading these notes from the fast day sermons, you realize that the minister often is saying, I'm not going to tell you what to think. I need you to discern biblically, you know, with the Holy Spirit. I need you to discern what is your sacrifice going to be for the common good? What What is your discernment about this political issue? And so that was one of the unexpected places. But, you know, the court records, too, are wonderful. Um They've they've all, almost all been digitized now, and so th- those aren't as easy. The, the, they used to be not easy to get to, and now they're quite easy to get to because they've been digitized. So we have the county court records, and 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 those are incredible. Those have all, you know, moments of tension, moments of struggle. It's interesting you use the expression there, Adrian. Common good. That's a theme that runs through the book, isn't it? This New England way of thinking about not just the individual or the family, but also the congregation, also the town or the area in which the congregation gathers. Above that, there's also a sense of the colony as a community. If I know colony is not quite the right language to use necessarily all the time, but uh, but and a sense even of the region as a whole, creating an identity for the region as a whole. In a way, that's what, this, that's what your book is unpacking, the layers of identity and responsibility that go right the way up to New Englandness, isn't it? Um, but uh, as we think about that context for your book, which you described really brilliantly. Could you tell us a little bit about how the colonies fared through the 1650s, this very disrupted moment in England, the the 11 Years Republic or whatever it is, and then how they experienced the return of the king in 1660? So in the 1650s, the colonists, I, I think to their great surprise, had very little demands placed on them. You know, at a, at a few times, 
Cromwell and his council of state do ask them to contribute in various ways. Sometimes they give a little, but for the most part, they stay out of, you know, they don't fight in Jamaica. They don't, they don't really contribute men to the armed forces. And so they have this astonishing freedom to develop economically. Uh, one of the things they do is expand up into the north. So they sort of very, we call it an exercise in creative geography. I think that's a quote from somebody, but they they take the language of the original boundary or, or, or the land that they had under the charter and they say, oh no, it must have been much further north, you know, at the mouth of the river rather than at the main part of the river. And so they, they go up into Maine and, you know, there's all these little settlements up in Maine. Some are Puritan leaning, some are not. And in the 1650s, there's been a lot of unrest for various reasons. There's all kind of royalist claimants back in England who are trying to impose a proprietorship on on various places in Maine. And the Massachusetts leaders go up there and say, we can offer you a stable court system. We can offer you ministers. So you actually have preaching in your churches. We can offer you defense if you need it. We have militias at the ready. And the Abenaki are peaceful at that point. But still, this is always a worry, especially attack from the French, always a worry for these people up in Maine. And I think nobody's actually that surprised when the various towns in Maine take them up on the offer and they say, yes, we would like to submit to the government of Massachusetts Bay. We like a stable court system. We like a, a pious ministry. We, you know, these are things that are attractive to us. And so that's the main sort of political shift in the 1650s is that Massachusetts Bay gets a lot bigger it and, and, and also develops economically. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, the, you know, the Puritan leaning colonies, Plymouth, New Haven, Massachusetts Bay and Connecticut, they also become, they, they learn to cooperate, I think, in more constructive ways. And it's a relatively peaceful time. Uh, there, you know, there, there's always, there's tensions among the Mohegan and the Narragansett and, and the United Colonies, which is the confederation, those four Puritan leaning colonies form. They try to, they try to negotiate. Um, but uh, you know, amazingly, it's actually pretty peaceful. And so they're expanding. They're making a lot more money economically, and they have relative peace. And these people have loads of kids. I mean, uh, life expectancy is high. Mortality is low, and so things are going pretty pretty well for them in the 1650s. So 1660 May, the king comes back. The republic is over, and. Puritans find themselves in a bit of a tricky situation, don't they? On both sides of the Atlantic, obviously, dissent is created in England. But how do the Puritan colonies or Puritan-leaning colonies fare in New England? Well, so at first they don't know what to think. I mean, there there's a lot of rumors that are circulating that maybe the restoration of the monarchy is going to be temporary, you know, that maybe there's going to be an uprising, maybe the Dutch are going to help out, maybe, you know, there's so there first of all, their access to reliable news is iffy at best. You know, they just, they don't have re- reliable news sources. They actually rank them. They rank the reliability of news sources as the ships come in. So Quakers are at the bottom. They don't trust Quakers at all. People from Virginia are not much higher than Quakers. Uh, you know, they do trust news that's passed along from Native American sachems, Narragansett sachems, or Nipmuc sachems. Uh, they, those are reliable sources of news if, if it's passed along uh, for the most part. So anyway, they have, they have lots of hierarchies of where do 
you get your news, but they have a really, really hard time figuring out what exactly is going on. So until they have agents on the ground in London, it's it's really, really difficult to know what's happening. They think that maybe, you know, the new king, Charles II, is going to be sincere in his promises of clemency, and 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 maybe he'll actually be good for the church. They're they're actually in those early early years. They're quite hopeful that maybe things uh, will will turn out for the best. So you mentioned that they really have to send people to England to find out exactly what's happening. And in the book, <clears throat> excuse me, in the book you describe. Uh, an expedition to England made by Simon Bradstreet and John Norton, two prominent New Englanders, who are going to meet people, find out what's happening. What's that journey all about and what are they trying to achieve? So they're sent as official agents from the Massachusetts Bay elected leadership. They're supposed to go and again, figure out exactly what's happening in England. They meet with prominent independents, Presbyterians, people like uh, Henry Ashurst. They meet with members of the New England Company, this philanthropy that's centered in London that's been sending money for Native American education and churches. And they're, they're really trying to figure out what's going on. And while they're there, the Bartholomew's Day ejections happen in August of 1662, and all these Puritan ministers are ejected. They're kicked out of their positions in the Church of England and the universities. And I really think if I'm sitting there with John Norton and Simon Bradstreet, you know, say at Asher's home in London, I'm I'm just aghast, right? They're they're just they 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 didn't I don't think they saw it coming. And now it's quite clear to them, and Richard Baxter records some of his conversations with them, that it's quite clear to them that things are not as they seemed. That that the Puritans are now the, the you know, the hopes for them to be treated uh, as, you know, really a part of the establishment, as a part of the religious and political establishment are pretty much dashed at that point. It's not that they might still figure out another way. Uh, and lots of people do continue working to, to figure out some form of inclusion. But at this point, they are they're devastated. They, they just they can't imagine um, how New England is going to relate to the empire, given what the regime is doing to nonconformists in England. And how is their report received when they head back to New England? Well, um, they say John Norton died of a broken heart because people felt like he was too willing to negotiate. It's a sad story. You know, he does he does die soon after. Um, his, his congregation is quite unhappy with him. I mean, I think probably Norton and, Brad, and Bradstreet did their very best. They tried to negotiate. They think they offered. There's hints. There's not firm evidence, but there's hints that they offered something like an annual tribute, which they, you know, the New England colonies do end up giving all kinds of tribute of masts, you know, the the, the beautiful straight trunk of trees and, and provisions for the Royal Navy in the form of dried pork and, and these other things. So, you know, they probably hinted at those kind of things. And, and you know, the line between tribute and uh, a, a, a proprietor's right for a proportion of the profit is so close. And I think people were resentful of that. Um, but, you know, I think their their role as agent was crucial because they come back and then they give a very accurate version. And uh, there are actually conversations in the Privy Council about imposing a bishop 
on New England about imposing a royal governor on the region. And, you know, that would have that would have been such a drastic change for these people who were used to elected leadership, who were used to running their own churches. Uh, it, it would have been an end in, in a lot of ways to the New England they knew. And that, I suppose, is what the centre of your book is all about, isn't it? It's about the challenge to these New England traditions, uh, a challenge that was presented by the arrival of four royal commissioners coming with a small arm flotilla, um, mm-hmm. the opposite direction across the Atlantic, to attempt to impose some kind of royal will. And it's perceived to be arbitrary, tyrannical perhaps even, but it really threatens the institutions that have been developing in the colonies, doesn't it? That's right. And, you know, first they come over to take over New Netherland and turn it into New York. And then the part of the story that's not as well known is that they they then come right up and they do a tour of New England and try to pressure the New England colonies into various forms of, uh, you know, compliance with the king's vision for what the empire is going to be like. And they go first to Plymouth, which is tiny. It has maybe 1500 people. And they try to pressure Plymouth into a kind of quid pro quo where if Plymouth will agree to have a royal governor, so appointed by the king rather than elected by the people, then they'll sponsor a royal charter, which Plymouth doesn't have and they need for legal, you know, governmental legitimacy. And so, um, you know, it, Plymouth could have gone either way. They, you know, what we know is that they talked late into the night. They they argued with each other. They they debated. They tried to figure it out. And in the end, they decided they wouldn't give up their elected governorship. They just said it's not worth it. We'll we'll wait and see what's going to happen. Uh, so because I think I think Plymouth is such an important test case because Plymouth holds strong and they don't give in to this quid pro quo agreement. And of course, the royal commissioners are furious. Um, but because Plymouth holds strong, I think then Connecticut and, and uh, well, New Haven's going to be absorbed into Connecticut, but Connecticut and Massachusetts Bay uh, have, have a stronger leverage. They have, they have, they're in a stronger position because of the decisions that Plymouth makes. So what exactly is it the Royal Commissioners want to achieve that the colonists, or many, many of the colonists at least, want to resist? Mm. So they have public instructions and then they have secret instructions. And it's a terrific exercise to compare the two. So the public instructions say, oh, you're supposed to honor the treaties with Native Americans and you're supposed to do all these nice things. Um, You're supposed to make sure they have good agreements and decide their boundaries in a way that's fair to all parties. You know, these things all sound really great and the kind of things that you might want an empire or a metropolis to, to send in agents to do for you. The secret instructions are quite different, and to my knowledge, they never disclose those, so so the colonists don't know what historians know about the secret instructions, but the secret instructions say things like, if you can, get them to accept a royal governor. If you can, get them to accept one of your own number, one of the four royal commissioners, to be the marshal general, who's the the general of the entire, uh, you know, combined militias. And so clearly the, the royal commissioners have ideas about what would be appropriate submission to the king that are different from what they're saying, at least publicly in the beginning. So they have public and private instructions. Do they have a personal agenda at play as well? They do. So this, um, well, quite a few of them. And, you know, it would have been common at the time for agents in charter renegotiation processes to have some kind of 
benefit. You know, they should have been wined and dined. That would have been normal for the time. We see this with the Corporation Act commissioners or various, you know, boards in, in England. It's it's not it's not considered unethical or unusual, but these royal commissioners in particular, especially one of them, a man named Sir Robert Carr, he has his eye on either a governorship of New Hampshire or a governorship of Narragansett, which is territory that they take over and rename the king's province. It's territory in Rhode Island. And if neither of those works out, he just really wants a big estate. He really wants a big chunk of land right on the Narragansett Bay. Uh, it happens to be land that's Shawmet. So it's the Pamum is the sachem of the Shawmets. And it's a, it's a complicated uh, scenario. But basically, he's submitted himself to Massachusetts Bay because he did not like being a tributary to the Narragansett. And so there, you know, I tell the story in the book of this showdown basically between Sir Robert Carr and Palmham and uh, John Elliott, the missionary gets involved, Roger Williams, the founder of Rhode Island gets involved and they both back Palmham and they essentially say to Sir Robert Carr, the Royal Commissioner, you can't just take his land. You can't throw money at him and assume that money's going to be, you know, if you double the money that you then can kick him off his land. You can't do any of those things. This is his ancestral territory and he gets to keep it if he wants to. And Palmham will occasionally take money, but he has no intention of leaving or, or moving his people from the land. So the, the royal commissioners are, you know, they're characters. They they do certainly have uh, personal agendas. Richard Nichols, I think, is probably the most qualified of all of them, but he's so busy stabilizing New York. He ends up being the, the governor, at least in a temporary sense of New York. And so he's not as involved as he could have been. It's always been an interesting question to me. If Nichols had been more involved, what would have happened because I think he did actually have an ethical compass and, and, and I think things might've played out differently, but as it was, the three commissioners were being led by Sir Robert Carr, who uh, definitely had, um, you know, his own ambitions and his own desire for land and, and influence. It's interesting. You mentioned native, the, the impact of the Royal commissioners visit on the native American peoples in the area. One of the really striking moments in the book for me was um, an intervention in one of the debates in one of the colonies where a colonist argues that they bought land from a Native American and therefore the legal integrity of that purchase um, overrid any claim from England about superimposed authorities. Yeah, so all the way back to the days of John Winthrop, the colonists tend to want it both ways. I mean, they say, yes, the king, through a charter, gave us right and dominion to both land and rule. But that's even from the earliest years in the 1630s, they don't think that's enough. They think that they need to purchase the land. And so they have deeds. And so they they just say they're, they're both important, right? We have the charter from the king. We also have purchased this land from Native people. Um, Alan Greer's work is really terrific on this property and dispossession uh, because he compares the the French and the English situations. And the English is quite distinctive in that they so early that they assume they need to purchase the land. Now, that's not to say they did it fairly. You know, sometimes native sachems, they there was alcohol involved before they signed. Maybe the the. Uh, you know, amount of land was unclear. So I'm, I'm not at all saying that it, it was done fairly, but they did have, they did sense that they, they knew they had an obligation to purchase the land. And boundary issues are interesting in the book as well, aren't they? Again, I was, I was kind of amused by the story of the person who tells, I think the Royal Commissioner, about the location of a bound house 
that marked the boundary was a, a, of the Massachusetts colony, I think, but it had been replaced by a barrel. <laughs> is that is that my is that my memory correct? That's right. Yeah, this this old farmer uh, takes the royal commissioners out and shows them the barrel, which was where the bound house used to be. <laughs> yeah. So no bounds are really confusing, and there's no accurate map. No one has an accurate map. In fact, the colonists deliberately withhold giving accurate geographic information either to the royal commissioners or to the privy council or the king uh, because they don't want the king to assume there's vast lands that he could give out to royal favorites or that there's salt or iron or you know all these natural resources they're trying to uh, they're trying to lay low in, in a lot of senses. They they don't want the New England to be seen as a place of abundance and natural resources because they'd like to figure that out for themselves first. Uh, so yeah, the bound house is great. And that's, that's the moment, you know, the Royal Commissioners assume that the boundary of Massachusetts is right at the Merrimack River. And then they say, no, no, it's way up at the mouth of the river, you know, many, many miles to the north. Because that's and, where um, the barrel is. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> how well did the Royal Commissioners understand the very different legal and constitutional positions of the colonies? Hmm. Well, in a way, you've got two different legal cultures, and I think those emerge probably in the 16th century. You know, we can go all the way back to the way certain English towns were run in a semi-autonomous manner where people voted and, and you know, things operated at the local level. And certainly they were loyal to the monarch, but they they understood that their rights of representation and consent were, were quite firm. And New Englanders inhabit and uh, inherit that tradition, which then is amplified by many times during the English Civil War and on the parliamentary side. So, so they inherit both of those traditions in a really strong way. The royal commissioners, three of them fought on the royalist side of the English Civil War and were pretty high ranking. And so they, they come in assuming that Puritans are by their very nature, you know, rebellious, rabble rousers, disrespectful, um, probably seditious. They, they come in with certain assumptions about Calvinism as being by its very nature uh, tending towards sedition. You know, what we think of as Calvinist resistance theory, they just think of as, you know, a way to tar these people with a kind of rebellious uh, names and and to to assume that they don't have the best interest of the crown or the empire at heart. And so you do have a lot of misunderstanding. You have a lot of people speaking past each other. And uh, it doesn't help that there's a few regicides, men who actually signed the death warrant for Charles I, who are running around in New England and people are welcoming them and, and hiding them. And so once the royal commissioners find that out, I mean, they just they just don't trust that uh, that these people really really are loyal to the crown at all, and th- that's a remarkable story. The story of Wally and Goff, isn't it? Robert Harris, I think, did his last novel uh, on their adventures in New England, and again they crop up regularly in this book of constitutional culture. Um, did the colonies all respond to the royal commissioners in the same way? No, so Connecticut has an advantage that Massachusetts Bay does not have in that John Winthrop Jr. is himself a scientist and a physician, and he has a close relationship with Robert Boyle, who's uh, a leader in the Royal Society and 
you know, very, very interesting figure. Their, their, their correspondence is fascinating. And, and I do think they respected each other. They had a friendship. And so Robert Boyle has the ear of the king. He is uh, instrumental in helping John Winthrop Jr., the governor of Connecticut, negotiate a new royal charter early on in 1662. And so because Connecticut has that, you know, culturally, they're very, very similar to the rest of the New England colonies. And they're a part of the Confederation, the United Colonies. But Winthrop Jr. is, he feels safe, I think, in a way that Massachusetts Bay does not. And Connecticut is smaller. It's not as economically prosperous. And so it's not as big a prize either. It's it's Massachusetts Bay that's really the economic powerhouse in this time. And so, uh, so you know, in a way, the royal commissioners, when they visit Connecticut, they give a lot of things a pass. I mean, Winthrop just has to, you know, he gives them a lot of gifts and he hosts them and he makes much of them. And he has lots of words about how loyal Connecticut is. And, you know, he's, oh, yes, I'll definitely give you the law code so you can look it over, but he never does. So Winthrop really finesses things and in a way that the people in Massachusetts just don't. They, they're they so fed up. And in a lot of ways, it's because the, they, you know, the, the Royal Commissioners have already uh, done a whole bunch of things that they find deeply offensive. You know, they've overturned their courts. They've they've sided with people like Quakers and Gortonists who they feel like are trying to undermine their society. So the relationship breaks down pretty quickly, whereas with Winthrop, he's able to to finesse it. He's able to maintain at least a facade of good relationship. So the royal commissioners eventually make their way home. Has their trip to New England been a success or not? (laughs) Well, they didn't get... uh, they didn't get all of what they wanted for sure. They didn't get a, a royal governor installed. They didn't get control of the militias, though they do take over part of Maine. And they they do, uh, that does become a kind of little royal colony for a time. They actually mobilize a militia in Maine uh, to protect that territory. So that, you could, you could call that, that couple of towns, Wells, York, those couple of towns up in Maine, a success for them. Um, they are irate because you know they they looked over the entire law code and tried to get the people the leadership of Massachusetts Bay to rewrite a whole bunch of their laws in order to honor the king more fully in order to give more power in order to give um, you know the royal commissioners really wanted an appeals court so a, a, a royal court that could overturn the decisions of local courts and the people of Massachusetts just won't have it for for them that's way too much royal power they want people they've elected to be the ones overseeing justice in their region and so um, you know that's that's definitely a failure on the part of the royal commissioners but you know they also are able to gather a whole bunch of intelligence about uh, forests and forts and, uh, you know, the workings of the government. And that becomes very useful in the 1670s and the 1680s when the crown, of course, will come in and, and essentially uh, will take over the region for the crown. So how does your story set us up to understand what happens in the 1770s? Oh, all the way to the 1770s. Well, you know, there's it's I, I always say it's a long 18th century. There's all kind of things that happen in terms of, you know, Lockean philosophy and, and religious change and 
scientific change. You know, there's a whole lot that happens. I don't think it's a direct line between the resistance movement of the 1660s and that of the 1770s. On the other hand, I do think this is a deeply rooted tradition that, you know, under the pressure of the Royal Commissioners in the 1660s, the people of New England learned to articulate what are the lines that kings cannot cross? What is Why is it that we are allowed to elect, elect our own leaders? Why is it that we're allowed to run our own churches? What are the both theological and philosophical and, and also political basis for our government, for our liberties? And those, those patterns of action and articulation absolutely persist. And you can track it. I mean, you can see it in the documents of the town meetings in the little New England towns. You can see it in the fast day sermons and the election sermons. Uh, You can see it in political treatises, uh, you know, that talk about issues of consent and representation and natural law and right of self-defense. And so I do think it's a, it's one very important strand. I think there's a reason why the American Revolution starts in Massachusetts. Um, you know, it's it's hard to get around it. There's these people are primed in a lot of ways to to be sensitive to royal overreach or parliamentary overreach of any kind. And so I do think those those traditions matter. And you know, there's been quite a few terrific books on historical memory in various regions, and most of them have discovered that New Englanders have an astonishingly high, uh, rich level of historical memory. They know their history, right? They recite it to their kids. They they hear it in sermons. And so that that kind of intense historical sensibility means that, the, the, that there are continuities between the 17th and the 18th century. I think it's very difficult to understand regionally the American Revolution if you don't understand the constitutional battles of the 17th century. Brilliant, Adrian. And if anyone does want to find out about that, the best place I think they can look is your book, A Constitutional Culture, New England and the Struggle Against Arbitrary Rule and Restoration Empire, just published by University of Pennsylvania Press. Adrian, we've taken up a lot of your time today and it's been great to talk about the book. Uh, It was a delight to read. It's, It's brilliantly written. It's artful in the way that you, you know, compose stories and how these um, big themes c- come out of it, you know, in, in such a, a compelling way. But before we wind up, could you tell us what your next project might be? What can we look forward to reading next? Sure. I'm working on a man named Daniel Gukin, who's the commissioner for Indian Affairs. Well, he does all kinds of things. He's in Virginia. He's born in Ireland. He um, He's in Maryland for a while. Then he's uh, good friends with John Elliott in Roxbury, and he becomes the commissioner for Indian Affairs. And he writes two book-length manuscripts about Christian Native Americans. And then he also becomes an advocate for Native American land rights and religious access. And so I'm working on a collected volume of his works. And I'm also writing a book about a particular episode when he was involved with the courts and the kind of legal battles for these Christian Native Americans. So that's the that's the current project. That sounds brilliant. Uh, I look forward to, to seeing that in due course. But for now, thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you for your time. Thanks for writing this book. Uh, and um, thanks for chatting. It's wonderful always uh, to see you, Crawford. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast.